You are listening to audio from Summit Community Church. You can join us Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on our YouTube channel at SCC Morganton. Good morning, everybody, once again, and welcome to Summit Community Church. We're glad to have you with us in our journey through God's Word and what we're calling the best sermon ever. Title that because it is preached by the greatest preacher who's ever lived, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His first message he preached to bring forth a new kingdom ethic. Jesus ascends the Mount of Beatitudes. He gathers a circle of his disciples around him, a concentric circle of multitudes, and he begins to teach a new kingdom ethic to them and to us as well. See, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and Matthew wants to portray Jesus as a greater Moses. Remember, Moses went on Mount Sinai to receive the law of God for God's people. And Moses said, wait here at the base of the mountain. I'm going up there to get God's laws, and I'll bring them to you. He does. He brings them down and says, you better obey these or else. Jesus is teaching this new kingdom ethic, and Jesus does not say, wait down here for me. He says, come up here with me, gather around me as I teach you about these new laws, this new kingdom ethic that God has put forth here for us. Join me up here on this Mount of Beatitudes, this mountain that was a natural theater created by God's design with hillsides on both sides, the Sea of Galilee below made it a natural theater here from the top to the bottom very clearly. Jesus is teaching a brand new kingdom ethic for all of us. The Sermon on the Mount does not teach us how to really get in the kingdom. It's about how we are to live once we are in the kingdom. It's a discipleship course for the lives of those who are followers of Christ. As we begin to understand this whole passage, we've got to understand this. The verdict comes before the performance. Get this straight. We are declared righteous through Jesus shedding his blood and down on the cross in our place for our sin, and then we respond in right living out of gratitude for all that he's done for us. The verdict comes before the performance. Jesus always wants us to understand through this, the identity always precedes activity. We act out of our identity. So far, we talked about the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are those blessed statements. Eight statements that are not independent statements, but they're cohesive through the gospel being thread through all eight of these. Jesus begins by saying, blessed are you poor in spirit. He says, we begin by regeneration. Christ, God, regenerating our hearts, allowing us to see that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We're destitute. We are broken people. Then through that regeneration, Jesus begins to move us to repentance, how we begin to turn the reins of our lives over to Jesus Christ, saying, God, be my Savior, be my Lord, I'm yours. Then in that regeneration, that repentance, he begins the process of sanctification, making us holy and more like him, being peacemakers, being merciful, meek. Then he says, you know what? You're not saved by work. You're saved through me, my grace, my righteousness, my holiness. But once you're saved, you're to get to work. Then he responds of how we're to be salt and light. We gather as believers in Christ 
as followers of his, to be salted up, to be scattered out into the world because salt brings flavor. Salt creates thirst. Salt preserves. We are to preserve, bring flavor, and bring thirst to a world that does not know him. We are to be light. Light illuminates darkness. Light pushes back darkness. So Jesus says, now that you know me, regeneration, repentance, sanctification, now be salt and be lights in this dark world, this world that's decaying right in front of our eyes. Identity before activity. But once we establish all this, we act in this way, he begins to dig deeper into our hearts. And today we're talking about something that's probably, if you're like me, it's a very hard topic to grab my head and my heart around because I greatly struggle with this in my life. We're talking about anger. And we cannot talk about anger without also talking about forgiveness. How many of you would say, in all honesty, I have no issues with anger whatsoever? Well, I don't know about online, but I'm glad we're all honest right here in this place. I believe we all do, if we're honest. At some level, we deal, we struggle with anger. We struggle with extending forgiveness. We're going to talk about what is anger and how do we deal with anger. You see, as Christians, if you're a follower of Christ, we have a tendency to say we don't get angry. We push it back and say, oh, we don't get angry. We use words like, we were just frustrated. Have you ever used that word? I was just frustrated. Trying to say, no, I wasn't angry. No, just frustrated. Something out there is wrong, and I was just reacting to that wrong. So I'm just frustrated. I'm not angry. But the true, harsh reality is, yes, when we use that, we are indeed angry. We ended last week in verse 20 in chapter 5 of Matthew. Look at that with us. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This is like a setup from Jesus, setting us up what's coming next, because as we move through the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to elevate the law to an impossible level. Several times moving forward, he will say this, You've heard it said this way, but I tell you, You've heard this, but I tell you, elevating the law to a place that is impossible. So right after Jesus says our righteousness must exceed that of the quote-unquote professional righteous people, he is going to elevate the law beyond what we do. He's going to put it in our hearts and point out that even our motives matter. That's where it gets very difficult. Look what Jesus says. He goes right to the jugular here with the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments. Verse 21, he says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Then he moves to anger. Verse 22, But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Most, if not all of us, can say we're good on the murder thing. You know, I have not murdered, I'm good. Check the box. But then he elevates it to where every single one of us are guilty. When he says, but whoever is angry, you're like, if you're like me, you're going, what? Jesus, that is impossible. He says, exactly. So let's talk about anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. 
We'll talk about that scene in a moment, Ephesians 4, that it's okay to be angry in certain situations. There's a way to be angry and not sin. Jesus was angry, and Jesus never sinned, but he was angry. For example, the money changers in the temple, what happened? Jesus walks into the temple. He sees what's going on. He's angry at the money changers, at the, what's going on. He flips the tables over. He creates a whip to drive them out. If you flip tables and you create a whip, would you say that you're angry? Uh, yeah, kind of, just maybe a little bit. But he was angry at a system that they had put in place that was cheating people out of worship of God in a temple created for worship and prayer. That's what he was mad at. He was angry that they had created a system that was blocking, impeding people from praying and worshiping of God, which was the purpose of that temple, not to exchange money and to do these things. It was for worship. That's what he was angry about. In Mark 3, Jesus heals the man with a crippled hand. If you remember the story, and as he heals him, it says specifically that he was angry at the Pharisees because of, reason, because of their hardness of their hearts. His anger was motivated by love, and he did not see people totally devoid of value. It was motivated by love. It was aimed at his system, exploiting God's creation. He did not see that person, those people particularly, as an enemy. He just saw a system that was pulling them away from God. You see, anger, if we're honest, can be very motivating, can it not? Anger can be us seeing someone in the image of God being taken advantage of, being marginalized being ostracized, and we're angered at the situation and most likely motivated to do something about it. Anger can motivate, but most of the time, that's not the anger that we display, most of the time. Like, for example, in our homes, at work, with our spouse, with our kids, most of the time, it's not what we display. Here's what we miss on the screen. You see, feelings are a good indicator that something is not right. Feelings are good at, all, at alerting us, but just not good for decision-making. So when we get angry, it is a good indicator that something is wrong, either here, in here, or out there. It's just not a good decision-maker. What does Paul say in Ephesians 4? Go over there, if you will, for a minute. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Here's the difference between being angry and sinning and being angry and not sinning. It's the difference between reacting and responding. When you and I, when we get angry, we have an opportunity to react in anger or respond in love. Responding in love is different from reacting in anger because when we react in anger, it is sin because what happens? When I choose to react, we act in a certain way towards someone, then that person reacts back the way we acted towards them, and here we go. It causes a huge problem. Paul goes on to say in verse 27, and don't give the devil an opportunity. The NIV says don't give the devil a foothold. I've always thought about mountain climbing. When you're climbing a side of a mountain, there are footholds you grab with your feet to enable you to climb to the top. You calculate your next move, where your feet are going to go with your hands being sort of calculated moves. Whether it's a jump over, whatever, it is calculated. You look and say, there's a place for my foot to go. I'm going there. A foothold as you begin to climb up this mountainside. 
I heard another illustration this week of it'd be like you with when you were a kid or even as an adult, somebody storms off from you running or whatever, if either in fun or something didn't go well and you're chasing them for whatever reason, and they go to go into their room and close the door, and as the door's slamming, you stick your foot in the doorway and it hits your foot, what's happened? You block the door, then the door cannot close to keep you out. Therefore, you've got a pathway to get inside their room to continue what's going on. Satan looks for that foothold in our lives. He looks for that opportunity, and he will step in to not allow the door to close on our anger, and he makes it worse. So he says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. I always heard not letting the sun go down your anger is don't go to bed angry. Well, great point. But it goes deeper than that. I think Paul is saying, don't intentionally wait till nighttime and say, um, I'm sorry for what I did today. He says, keep short accounts of what you're done in anger. Keep them so short that they're minuscule because they move, because the longer it sits, the worse it gets. He's telling us, keep short accounts. Settle things quickly. Don't allow your anger to brew or stew. Resolve your anger. And let me give you an illustration from my life. Debbie always laughs at this, and I laugh now, but we'd been married on a couple of years, and Debbie was in stress of teaching everything else. She would talk in her sleep. And we were just reflecting about this, some friends of ours, and, and just this past weekend, and um, this past week, and this one particular night, you ever felt eyes looking at you in the middle of the night like something's not right? Well, I feel these eyes looking at me, and it's Debbie. And she's leaning up on her pillow, and I should have known because I know Debbie, who she is and how she operates, her character. I know everything about her in a good way. I should have known better, but I let my feelings get the best of me. And I look up, and I'm looking eyeball to eyeball, and she's just looking at me wide-eyed. And I said, Debbie, I said, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? She looks at me, with this, and it was a very evil voice. She says, you just shut your mouth. And I said, whoa. And I thought, and I just sat there in the bed going, did I just hear her say that to me? So she, as soon as she says it, she goes down and back to sleep. So it should have been a giveaway, but not to me. I internalized this thing. We got up the next morning. She got ready. Before I did, she always went to work earlier than I do, and I did. And she kissed me goodbye, and I gave her a quick smack, and I said, mm, yeah. She goes off to work. I go to work. I stewed, and I brewed all day long over that statement in the middle of the night. She beats me. She got home earlier than I do. She got home. She was in the kitchen. I come home, and I come in there, and I was slamming things around, throwing stuff around. She said, what is wrong with you? And I said, do you not know what you did last night? She said, what? I said, you looked me right in the eyes and said for me to shut my mouth. And then she started laughing. That made it worse. And I said, this is not funny. She said, Mike, you know me. You know I talk in my sleep. Most things you can't even articulate what I'm saying. It's so stupid. She said, you know me. And I said, yeah, but she told me to shut my mouth. She said, Mike, really? And I walked off. Finally, I said, oh, yeah, you're right. What had I done? I blew a whole day stewing and brewing over my anger over something I shouldn't ever be angry about to begin with. He says, keep your accounts short. The reason is anger is left, untaken, left unattended to will lead to bitterness quicker than you ever imagined. And when bitterness creeps into your heart, it will make you an expert at all the wrongdoings of others. You become judge and jury of everybody else. 
because of your bitterness. All of a sudden, here we are, and everything moving forward with that individual or in any situation, we become the expert record keeper of other people's wrongdoings. You see, it's impossible to constantly critique somebody and still love somebody. He says, keep short accounts. Jesus speaks very clearly about this. Look, the crazy thing about anger is a, is a dominant emotion. Jesus knows this. What happens when we display anger? All other emotions flee. They run because anger takes over. Anger is a dominant emotion. And usually, if I'm honest, anger is a defense mechanism for something deeper and underneath the surface, a more softer, a softer kind of emotion. The anger is a shield for a much softer emotion that's underneath the surface in my life. The real question is why? Why am I angry? What is going on in me that has made me angry? And there can be logical reasons. We see injustice happening around us. We're withholding forgiveness from an individual. We're continually misused, abused, devalued. With these reasons and others, we, our anger is stirred up. And usually, when our anger is led into a fight, it's not what, but who. What do we do? We blame other people. It was them. It was my boss. It was my kids. It was my spouse, my ex-spouse, my teacher, my professor, my coach, whoever in my life. It was them that did this. James asked a question. Jesus' brother what causes quarrels and fights? We say it's them. It's what they did to me. What does James say? James 4 verse 1 says this. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? James says you can, you can, you can cast blame all you want. He says, but the answer is inside of you. You are the one. It's your passions inside of you that creates this battle line, this battle scene in your life between you and others. Did you know that someone else or something else can never make you mad, make you angry? Anger is a decision. Anger is a choice. Things like your spouse, your wife or husband, uh, your kids, your boss, this teacher, professor, coach, whoever, they don't have the ability to make you angry. You choose this. And I'm going to label one for myself. Just study this all week. And prior to studying in last night, between there and then, last, yesterday I was looking at my notes. Guess what happened? I had this moment of something that I blamed for anger in my life. It was a traffic light. Coming down Enola Road, connecting with uh, 18 up here. I mean, uh, yes, coming through North Green up here, where it connects with there. That's got to be the longest light of eternity that sits with no cars ever coming. And we hit it all the time. That's the direction we come from our house. So we come in town yesterday. We're sitting at this light, and I'm sitting there at the steering wheel. No traffic within miles. Green, green, green. We're sitting here red, red, red. Not changing. And I was like, well, this has got to be the longest light of eternity. And David's just laughing. The more I sat, the more I brewed and stewed in anger until finally it changed. And I blamed my anger on a traffic light. We got on up here to the light, turning left to go up the hill to Little Caesars and Boulevard Barbecue and all that. We were getting some dinner for takeout. And that light is one of the longest lights. 
And the guy next to us who was turning got in that turn lane, and he was in a truck, and we were in our Highlander, and he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, he'd had enough. I guess he was <laughs> worse off than me, but <laughs> he, the lights were green. All of a sudden, they turned red. Think, well, it's our turn. Well, he didn't realize this traffic's going to come first, so he speeds off in his truck, just spins out and goes, and I thought, well, maybe he's getting ready to turn. Do you know he had another whole turn section before it was turning green? He just run a red light. And I was like, man, he's worse off than me, but, man, I was angry. I waited again. But that traffic light did not have the ability to make me angry. It was my fault. It was in me. We can blame other things and other people, but it's in me. He says it's in you where it comes from. It's what's already inside of me that does that, the passions inside of me. Verse 2, he says, James says, you desire and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and wage war. We say, I just want to be treated fairly. I just wanted to fix a wrong with what is right. I want the right to hit that button to make that light change when I drive up. Not wait. Make everybody else wait, not me. Because I am a sinful in my impatience. Do you see the connection? We want something. Whatever it is, we don't get it. The result is anger. Jesus says it all comes down to our hearts. He says for out of the mouth, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. These words that come out of our mouths. If we have anger in our hearts, it's going to come out of our mouths and our words. So whatever comes out of here is started here to begin with. When the pressure hits, situation happens, we choose to quickly react rather than give a calculated response. Here come those careless words. And no matter how much we get shaken up, there's no excuse for careless words. So often what we say, we spit them out. Oh, I'm sorry for what I said. I really didn't mean it. In basketball, we're saying, because I didn't mean it, then you should not be offended. It doesn't count. I was just, just angry. But have you ever noticed that when somebody says something hurtful to us, we always judge their actions? But when we're the one who's the offender, we judge our motives, <laughs> soften a little bit on ourselves. See, there are a few ways we can deal with our words. The first way, wrongly, is aggression. We can be aggressive in our anger with our words. Verse 22, Jesus says this, Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. Stop there. Jesus says, anybody who calls someone a fool, an idiot, or being empty-headed, as Scripture would say in the Greek there, he says they are a person subject to hellfire, subject to the courts. The Bible says our words have power. Proverbs 12 says our words have the power of blessing or cursing. Proverbs 12, it says this. It says, there is one who speaks rashly like a piercing sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. You see, my words, your words, all our words have power. They can hurt or they can heal. The choice is how we use our words. You know, every one of us could probably think back to someone, some way, somehow, some angry words came at us. And if you're honest, you would admit that probably felt like a stabbing. It hurts so bad, and it hurts so long. And Jesus says your words have the ability to hurt. But your words also have the ability to heal. Here's, people will live up to the blessings we bless them with or live down to the curses we curse them with. We can be aggressive with our words. We can be passive in our anger with our words. That's when we don't say anything. We, we sort of just 
we don't lash out. We just tuck it in like a turtle and hide. And in our passiveness, we're basically saying, I'm going to punish you by just simply not speaking to you. I'm just shutting down. I'm not going to show you how awesome I am, the awesomeness in me, and I'm just going to let you know that I'm just going to sit here and just let it sit. Passive. But then there's also, this is the good one, we can be passive-aggressive in our anger with our words. Passive-aggressive is when we toss out that little backhanded compliment. It's when we throw out sarcasm or disguise what we're saying with a joke. You ever had that happen to you or done it to someone? We say something hurtful, then we tell that person why they should not be feeling hurt. Telling people that what they need to feel and why they should not be hurt by our words. Bottom line is anger is no excuse for careless words. Christians, believers in Christ, are so bad at, at identifying and admitting our anger and properly dealing with it. What do we always say? We'll say things like this whole list of words we've got. I wasn't angry. I was just venting. No, I wasn't angry. I was just frustrated. No, I wasn't angry. I was just annoyed. No, I wasn't angry. I was just anxious. We can call it whatever it is. Jesus plainly, simply says, bottom line, it is anger. Whatever we call it. Jesus is saying, if you murder, you're subject to judgment. If you're angry, you're subject to judgment. He says, watch our mouths. Verse 23, what does he say? So, if you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, stop. That word so is there for a specific reason because this is so important. He's building a statement that says, so... If this happens and you find there's something between you guys, then here's what's got to happen. The point of this verse is not that you're angry. What does he say? He says, this is somebody is angry at you. This is not that you are the offended, but you are the offender. You realize you offended somebody. You've been in the wrong. You need to go to them. What does he say? Look how important it is. He says, so leave your gift there in front of the altar First, go be reconciled with your brother or sister, then come and offer your gift. Here's what he's saying. Our horizontal relationships impact our vertical relationship. Every relationship we have on a horizontal level with one another, with brothers and sisters in this world, affects our vertical relationship. This should be the driving force to bring this to a right place, but we let this drive in a wrong way, and it affects this. He says our horizontal relationships impact our vertical relationship. In his day, he was talking about bringing your sacrifices, bringing your things to the temple in your worship. Let's bring it 21st century. He would say, before you ever begin to open your mouths in a song of worship to me about how much you love me and I love you, and you realize you've done something to someone else who was offended by you, please get that straight first. Stop the worship song, then come worship me when you got it fixed. Because this is critical, this is important. Hold off on that, then come with your songs, with your worship. It's a serious moment, serious time. Fix it. Get it straight. How do we do this? In 21st century America, in 21st century Burke County and Morgan, how do we do this? How do we reconcile ourselves with somebody else? Whether you were offended or you were the offender, 
first and foremost, we fix our eyes not on the offense or the offender. We choose to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ and remind ourselves of our place with the Almighty King of the universe. What happened with Him? Although we had completely offended Him over and over and over again with our sin, God, through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross in our place, did not count our trespasses against us. In the same way, when we have been forgiven in this way, we're to extend forgiveness to others. The same way. Peter thought he had it figured out, didn't he? Matthew 18. He comes to Jesus and says, Hey, Jesus, I got a question. How many times should I forgive my brother and my sister? When should I, how long should I forgive those people around me? He says, Well, Peter, you tell me. Peter steps up like he's going to be the star student. Seven. How about seven times? Thinking he's going to get a star for that day on his chart. Good job, Peter. Jesus says, well, no, not really, Peter. Actually, it's not really seven, but it's really seven and 70. Which literally in the Greek is this. It's seven, number completion, times seven, number completion, times 10, also number completion. You know what that's equivalent to in English? A bazillion. He's basically saying, Peter, when you think about forgiving other people, think about how many times that I have forgiven you. Just think about those. And to Peter, he was basically saying, come a, come a little while in the future here, I want you to process when I go through the cross for you, think about how big that forgiveness is. For me and you, we look back on this, and we can see what Christ has done on the cross in our place for our sins. So he says, when you struggle with forgiving others, you remember how much I've forgiven you. And the equivalent is a bazillion, never ending. Now, Jesus illustrates how we should deal with our anger with a reference, again, to the courts. Look at verse 25. He says, he says reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way to the courts. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. He's saying once again, keep short accounts of your anger moments. Deal with them quickly. Deal with them efficiently. Because what starts small, you don't deal with it, will escalate to a place you never saw coming. Do you see the flow in that section there in verse 25 26 he's got a, he's got a flow he says he says but reach a settlement quickly because he says do it while you're on the way but while this thing is building stop it quick on your way to the court because if you get to that point you'll be handed to the judge then to the officer and thrown into prison it's going to go downhill really fast Go to a place you never intended or wanted it to go, and here you are in this bad place in your anger. He says, deal with it quickly, deal with it efficiently, deal with it completely, get it on the table, let, let it go. Deal with it, because this progression is not good. He's saying anger will take you prisoner, anger will hold you captive, and anger is costly. 
It will steal you of your joy, steal you of your relationships. It robs everything within you. Deal with it. Forgiven people forgive people. Bottom line. In our anger, when we feel like somebody's offended us, how in the world can we be offended when we've been so offensive to a holy and righteous king? A king who stepped out of heaven became sin for us that we could be credited with his blood and his sacrifice. Forgiven people are forgiving people. And a hard question is, if we're not given out the forgiveness, do we have it? Because if we possess the forgiveness of Christ, we're to be givers of that forgiveness to others. Now, here's my challenge to us today as we close. Please, with everything in you, take this personally. Because we have a tendency in words from Jesus like this, to look at it, to read it, to write things down and say, boy, I can't wait to share these notes with somebody else. They need these. And we're thinking about other people that could use this. You ever been guilty of that? I can't wait to share this with this person because they need this. Well, Jesus is saying there's no, nobody more needy than you. Nobody more needy of this than me. The questions are, who am I angry with? Why am I angry with them? We've got to go deep and see the root issue of why. We've got to ask, what is keeping me? What is keeping me from forgiving the way Christ has forgiven me? And Jesus says, ditch the blame game. Get rid of all the excuses. So what will be the next step? Set up that meeting with this individual. Make that phone call to them, or maybe a softer first touch, which I don't believe is really complete conversation, but it can be a segue into a meaningful conversation. Send a text as an introduction to a phone call to a meeting. But set it up. Be, pro be proactive. Initiate the pathway of reconciliation. We must find a way to properly deal with and understand our anger to be at a place of forgiveness. Otherwise, we're like a prisoner held captive. Where are we with this? I would ask you as we sing now in worship, let God deal with your hearts. And as God points things out to you, deal with it with Him in a very private way, where you stand or at the front, wherever, deal with it. And as God deals, you do business with Him. Let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, as we sing our worship song to you, as we surrender, submit our hearts and our lives to you, help us to deal with how you deal with us and to in turn deal with others the same way. Help us, Father, to deal with our problems that we've had maybe recently, I don't know, maybe some unresolved issues. Have your way in our hearts, we pray. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Summit Community Church, please check out our website at summitchurch.me or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at SCC Morganton.